his story changes our story. And that really is, as we've, over the last number of weeks, talked about the story, looking at the story of God through time, through history, through the recording of his word, the Bible, his story was meant to be our story. And I know that when I write my own story, I end up in places, in circumstances that God never intended for me to go. And many of you found, find yourself or have found yourself in places in your story, in, in places that God never intended for you to go. And we see that in the scripture, that when his people, the children of Israel, as we've studied over Genesis through uh, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy over the last number of weeks, when people try to write their own story, they find themselves in places that they never should have been. And so we want God to write our story, and I want God to write my story, and I want his story to become my story, and his to integrate, or my story to integrate into his. I just think that is an important aspect of understanding the Christian faith, that it's not just a, I prayed a prayer at one time, and then I just try to live a good life. That's not it. That's not it at all. And I think we've discovered that over last week as we talked about the law and how the law showed us how sinful we were and that we aren't able to do it on our own. This morning, we're going to dive into Joshua chapter 4. So as you uh, pull out your scripture or you open up version in the live app, you can follow along in scripture in Joshua chapter 24. We're actually going to cover parts of it this morning. I discovered in, in first service, I'm not going to be able to get through all my notes today. And I'm glad I didn't. It would have been... a, a a long service for first service. So we're going to stretch it into two weeks, and hopefully I can do a, a, a good job in communicating what God has put on my heart to help us understand the book of Joshua, because I really feel like it sets up many of the Old Testament stories for us to understand the character of God. So as you turn in the Bible, Joshua 24, I want to celebrate somebody else. I just realized this morning, someone told me, that we have a, a, a prestigious award winner uh, in our congregation, uh, Terry Nickerson. Give us a, a wave over here. Some of you know him as Taxi Terry. The yellow cabs driving around town, Taxi Terry's, that's him. And uh, he won the Black Entrepreneur of the Year Award. That's a pretty prestigious award. So, Terry, Terry, how do I go about winning an award like that? I got to be black first. Okay. I'm going to work on that. I love Terry. What a blessing to our church and to our community. And uh, we celebrate you, Terry. Thank you for uh, your faithfulness to God. Joshua chapter 24. We're kind of starting at the end, but I feel like what, where Joshua ends up with the people of Israel is a, is a great place to start because it'll set us up for going back to the first few chapters. Joshua chapter 24, starting in verse 14. Joshua, after having walked through the story of where God had led the people of Israel, with the people. He's basically recounting all the places God has taken them. He comes to this concluding thought. He says in verse 14 of chapter 24, now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your forefathers worship beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your forefathers served beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. Father, help me to communicate your words. May your Holy Spirit penetrate that which is from me 
would just evaporate, but that which is from you would sink deep into our hearts. Amen. So I see in Joshua, as he lays out, basically throws down the gauntlet to the people, at the end of recounting their story and how God has walked with them through all these circumstances, he says, now look, you have to choose. Choose this day whom you will serve. And he sets it up in a way that says, if serving God seems undesirable to you, have you ever been there? That serving the Lord is inconvenient. It gets in the way of things that we desire. And so it at times seems undesirable. And he calls them out and he acknowledges this sort of human trait that we at times see it as undesirable. If you don't acknowledge that, I think you're a liar, but whatever. Because I see that in me at times I say it's really hard to serve God. It's undesirable. And, and he calls it out. He says, if it seems undesirable, that's cool. Just choose who you will serve. Just choose who you will serve. I believe that we all worship and serve something. I, I had that conversation with an atheist friend of mine who said, well, I don't serve or worship anything. I said, ah, but in that statement, you choose to worship yourself. You become your own God in that statement. And Joshua says, if you're not going to choose the God, Yahweh, then you will have to choose something else, something that your life, everything that you revolve around comes, becomes about something. So who and what will it be? And so the people respond to Joshua, hey, we're totally for God. We love the story you just told us. Of course we're going to serve him. I feel like Joshua is preaching to the people on a Sunday morning and got them all riled up in great fervor in the room. Yes, Sunday morning, I'm going to serve Jesus. And then Monday morning comes and I have to go to work and school, and, right? And we forgot about the, the promises we made on Sunday. It's in those moments of high uh, experiences of God, which are totally needed, I think, in our life. But oftentimes when we walk away from that experience, we forget about God. And we crawl back up onto the throne of our heart and usurp God's power. And we say, okay, God, I got it from here. It's now Monday. Your job was on Sunday. Maybe, maybe I'm the only one who does that. But the people say, yeah, we'll totally serve God. Why, why wouldn't we? And I love Joshua's response in verse 19 of that chapter. He says, it says, Joshua says to the people, you are not able to serve the Lord. He is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He basically says, this is how it goes in my brain. The people say, yeah, we're, we're going to do that. We're going to serve God. You bet. Or as the northern, northerners say when I'm from in Minnesota, yeah, you betcha. <laughs> yeah, you betcha. We're going to serve God. Don't you know? <laughs> and Joshua straight up says, I'm sorry you're sitting in the front row. You will get spit on, okay? Just... <laughs> fair warning i'll stand back joshua says no you won't he calls him out he knows i think because joshua knows himself but because he knows the people he's seen the pattern of their life that as soon as he dies they will wander away from god He's, just, he's saying to them, look, I've wandered the desert with people. I was, I was here 40 or 80 years ago at this point when we had a chance to enter the promised land and I know what was in the hearts of your forefathers and they walked away from God. I wandered the desert for 40 years. 
And now I'm back here, and I've done everything I could to keep you on track to serve God. And he's reminding them, he's, he's encouraging them, he's prodding them. He says, no, you won't. God is holy, and he's a jealous God. And I think he's reminding the people of all the things that they've come through, and he's reminding them of the character of God. That he is holy and he is jealous. He goes on to say, he will not forgive your rebellion and your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, he will turn and bring disaster on you, make an end of you, even though he has blessed you or he has been good to you. He's saying, you might feel blessed and you might live in some good times, but if in that you miss God, it will be to your calamity. It will be to your undoing. At the beginning of Joshua, when you go back, it parallels what he's telling the people here. God is holy. He is a jealous God. Now, I want us to think about something. Last week, I I encouraged you that when you read Scripture, especially uh, Old Testament stuff and New Testament stuff that are in cultures that are completely different than ours, that it's wise of us not to be ethnocentric, to read from our culture and our ethnos, read it into Scripture and go, well, that doesn't make sense because this is how our culture is. So you have to have some study aids, some way to decipher what the culture was like there so that you can read it within the context of which it was written and then apply it from there. But there's also another way that we sort of misread Scripture or misread God is that we look at it in an anthropomorphic way. That's a big word that I paid a lot of money to learn. It means that we look at God from our human viewpoint and we attribute to him human characteristics. And while our human characteristics are attributes that we get from God, we have them in lesser respect. But then we turn around and read that back onto God. So we read jealous and we think of that boyfriend that we tried so hard to ditch for so many years. Mm -hmm. Come on, girls. Or guys, that, that girlfriend that just wouldn't leave you alone. And I get that God pursues us as a lover. He's jealous. He doesn't want to share you. But he's not abusive like that boy. He's not psychotic like that girl. All right? Okay. Some of you are bearing witness to that this morning. (laughs) But there is the challenge at the beginning of Joshua throughout Scripture to consecrate yourself. He says, get ready because we're going across to the promised land. We're going to go where God is taking us. And The River Jordan, which is at flood stage, the Lord splits it. They walk through on dry ground. This is reminiscent of what they'd heard all their parents and grandparents talking about how the Red Sea was parted with Moses. And now here's Joshua parting the Jordan River under God's power. It's split. They walk through, and they're just like, oh, wow, this is awesome. So they are experiencing God's power. He calls them to consecration, to be pure and prepared. And in this theme of holiness, we see God who calls his people to a new level of holiness. And in in this, there's a couple things I want us to try to unpack this morning and then we'll continue into next week. There is this theme in the Bible of God's holiness. Not sure if you knew that. But there's also a theme that God says there should be no other gods in your life. It's the number one commandment. No other gods before me. You should have but one God. This is what Joshua's calling the people to. He's reminding them. He's bringing them back. 
And throughout Scripture, this is the battle that is fought of idols that are placed in front of God. So how do we, do we have idols in our life? I think so. I doubt that we all have, you know, little shrines that we burn incense and sacrifice cats and things like that too. But there are gods in our lives. There are other gods, idols in our life, and I would say it this way. It's putting good things as the ultimate things. It's not just bad things. I mean, sure, there are bad things that, that take the place of God, but there are a lot of good things in our life, too, that take the wrong place. The right thing in the wrong place is still the wrong thing. And so, what is it in your life? Is there something else that's usurping God's position? One writer says it this way, it's our, our fondest desires that take God's place. It's anything that's more important to you than God. It's what absorbs your heart and your imagination and your resources. And when it gets to the level of an idol, it begins to be something you have to fight and protect and justify and hide oftentimes. And you, you refuse to even acknowledge it to yourself. Ask yourself this. If this thing was taken away, would I feel like hardly living? Would I feel like life is even worth living if that thing was taken away? It's that which in our lives we seek to provide for us that which only God can actually provide. That is an idol. And I don't know what that is for you. There are so many different things. I would say for some, it's, it's children. Children are good things most of the time. But they can become an idol. And you know these parents from TV shows like Toddlers and Tiara and Dance Moms. And the children take an unrightful place in the life of a parent. And it puts a lot of pressure on the kid. It's completely destructive. And that's often what happens in the idols in our lives. When we pursue success and, and work and things that provide for us some sort of satisfaction and even provide for us financially to provide for our families, but th- those of you who, like me, work can sometimes take the, the wrong place, and therefore, the very thing I want to provide for is actually suffering. And we look at, back at cultures who sacrifice children, like the Canaanites, who we'll talk about in the first part of Joshua, and we look at them sacrificing children. They're completely corrupt and evil. And we say, oh, man, I can't believe they actually kill their own children. But are we not as a culture sacrificing our own children on the altar of success and gain of some sort? What is it for you? Joshua reminds him by saying, you are not able to serve the Lord. I know your heart. Your heart is wicked. That's what the Bible says. It's really hard for us to imagine that because we think of ourselves as inherently good, don't we? But I know myself. I... In the deepest levels of my heart, I'm not good because I desire what I desire at the expense of others. And if you're honest with yourself, you know that selfishness is at your core and that monster tends to take over. It tends to seep into everything we do. We are not inherently good. We are inherently selfish. And Joshua's saying it's not by your power because it's only by God's power. It's not by your ability. It's only by God's grace. 
And then he says to them again, give up your idols. Somehow he knows they're hiding idols somewhere. They've, they've just traveled all these years, taken all these cities, done all these great things. God has shown his power. And yet he says to him, throw away your idols. I've read that several times this week, and I'm thinking, they've seen God's power, and yet they're hiding idols somewhere. And I don't know if these are physical, you know, like little trophies. You know, I, I always think of trophies, you know, like the soccer trophy with the guy frozen like this. I was, that's all I always think of when I think of idols. It's something like that. It's got to be gold. Did they hide those somewhere in their tunics or, you know, in their camel bags? I don't know. But he's saying, throw them away. I know you got them, whether they're physical or not. He calls them out on it. And this theme of holiness that's throughout the book of Joshua is important for us to understand that God is holy. He's without mixture. He's pure. I like this explanation of holiness. It's God's exaltation in majesty above creation. That puts holiness in a context that we cannot reach. His majesty above creation. His exaltation in majesty above all creation. He resides in in a place that we can't really comprehend, yet he calls us to. It's complete freedom from all moral Immorality and imperfection. He's pure. He's set apart. And so in his holiness, he calls to his people, be holy, have no other gods. I am your only God. I am the only God. I will not share my glory with another. And part of that is that he will not share you. We are the glory of God. His greatest creation meant to bring glory back to him. And he says, I will not share you, not with another idol, not with anything that drags your attention away from me. I will not share you. And this is where we start to see, when we talk about God's holiness, you can't get away from his holiness without talking about his justice, his judgment, and his wrath. Those are like the three no-nos of church. That does not mean a good offering if you preach on that. So we took the offering beforehand. No one wants to talk about God's justice or judgment or wrath because that's not good stuff. That's... But I don't think God can be God if he's not just, right? I mean, he has to be just. And if there then is a level of justice, that means there has to be a judgment, punishment for injustices. There has to be a point at which everything is set back right. I mean, that's the ultimate point of justice, isn't it? to try to set things back right. I know our legal system doesn't really uh, foster that all the time, but that's the goal is to set everything back right. And at the end of time, judgment comes. Why? Because God's justice. Everything will be set back right, back into perfection. We're scared of justice and judgment. I mean, we have this idea that we want justice, right? When you see something, uh, the, the young girl who was kidnapped and murdered in Springfield. Does that just make you extremely angry? I watched that, and I am just completely, my blood is boiling. It ticks me off. Why are we like that? Because that sense of justice was handed down from God. We have a vague memory, like a faded dream, of what justice is. And those things should make us upset. 
Now, I can't control everything. I can't always set things back right, but I sure want to try. Maybe more than I should. God is holy and just. And in our pluralistic society where anything goes and we teach tolerance, how in the world do we have justice? How do we have God in his holiness? Out of his great love for mankind as a whole, God must judge sin on its own merit. There is no scale. We want a scale, though, don't we? We want to be able to determine on our own what justice is and what judgments God can and cannot declare. And so we have this scale. We put ourselves on one side, we put everybody else on another, right? How, how fair is that? If, if I want to be God and play that role, you know how I judge? I take somebody, like my friend Jeff, and I take what I know about Jeff and what I can see from the outside, and I compare everything that I know about him in his badness, and I compare it to my goodness. Look how bad Jeff is. Look how good I am, right? I take what I, and I take what I don't know about Jeff, and I compare it to what I do know about myself. We are afraid of God's judgment, and oftentimes we couch it in terms of concern for other people. But really what scares us is that Judgment will fall on us, and that's scary, and it's a tough thing to encounter in the Scripture. Can I admit the reason I cut this message short in first service was because I'm wrestling with this? Trying, how do I communicate God's wrath and His love? How in the world do you wrap your arms around that bear? God's love and God's wrath. It's almost like we have a schizophrenic God. When you read the God of the New Testament, who is lovey-dovey and warm fuzzies for some of us, and then you read the Old Testament, and there's judgment and wrath, and you think, well, that, what? We don't want to talk about that. And it's hard as Christians to really deal with the tough subjects, and we want to gloss over it. We want to skip over it. We don't want to talk about that stuff. But can I tell you, if you don't wrestle with it and come to some sort of conclusion in your own faith, I guarantee you there are people apart from faith who are asking that question, who need to know, who want to know. They want to come to understand this God that we proclaim is love, yet has judgment and wrath. Lunch is at 12.30. Okay, so we have to hurry. College students, I'm glad you're here today. We have good food. I'll try not to burn it. God is holy and just. You can't have it one way and not the other. And I don't want it one way or the other. I want it just that way. I want God to be just because I want things at the end of time, all the things that didn't get fixed, I want it fixed. All all the tragedies and crises that have befelled me, befalled me, have come my way. I want it fixed at the end of time. And if there's no standard, then, then there's no God. His judgment stands against those who are outside of his covenant, right? Outside of relationship. If we live in judgment then when we live outside of that relationship with God through Jesus. The Bible says it this way. All have sinned. All have fallen short of his glory. What does that mean? It means we all fall short of, of perfection. You want to hold the scale up? Guess what's on the other side? It's not what you think. It's what God thinks. It's what the Bible says. It's perfection. You can't 
judge yourself against another person unless that person is Jesus Christ. That's what you have to compare your life to. So if you want to play judge, that's who you have to put on the scale. Where do you fit? How does that work? Right? Good luck with that. God was perfect. He demands perfection from us. But since we can't meet, meet it, not even with the law given to us, we couldn't even meet it, he sends Jesus. But what happens between the law and the gospel? There's no one righteous. Romans chapter 3 tells us very encouragingly, there is no one righteous, not even one. goes on to say this, there is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Keep preaching, pastor. That's good. Encourage me today. Okay, I'll keep going. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. And the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Pray, let's go home. These are the words of Paul in Romans chapter 3 and talking about God's righteous and righteousness and judgment. There's not one of us that are righteous. Not even if you have the law, he says. Not even if you're Jewish and follow every law, you're going to fall short. He says there will be no one declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. We talked about that last week. And so when we talk about justice, we want justice the way we see it instead of the way God sees it. And I want justice. I think it's logical to want justice, right? Amen? Amen. And the reason I think there is justice and the way that this uh, plays out is not only is it logical, but it's needed. There's no logical reason for justice if we evolved. If we evolved, then there's no need for justice because Darwin himself says we need death and destruction in order for this whole thing to work itself out. How in the world do we come up with a sense of justice? Well, I think there has to be a standard, and that standard is God. And we think we're essentially good, but the Bible says we're essentially bad, but that God is making a way for us through Jesus Christ. I think one of the things that we we need to understand when we're talking about justice and judgment, the first thing that happens after the, the children of Israel cross the Jordan River is that God calls them to wipe out the city of Jericho, completely and utterly destroy it. Every living thing, men, women, children, wipe it out. It's God's judgment on them. Uh, What? Is God schizophrenic? Is that another God? Is that some sort of... No, it's part of who God's... what God's character is like, that he is love... But there is wrath and judgment to all who stand outside of it. But there's grace, and the Old Testament is full of those stories. But in this case, not one person repented from the city of Jericho. It says that when they heard the Israelites were coming their way, they locked up the city. They locked up the city. I think they did it both physically and spiritually. They completely shut down the city. No one could go out. What that says to me is they were so depraved, they, did not, they would not have turned from God. They did not want to repent. They did not want to acknowledge that God was at work. And God, knowing this, was going to bring judgment. 
But it also says to me that those inside the city were so wicked, they wouldn't even let the innocent go. They were going to exact the death of the innocent as well. I put that on the people of Jericho, not the people of Israel. But there was one who was saved, Rahab and her family, a picture of, of Jesus Christ. And so in this moment, we see God's judgment. Have you ever said, judge not, lest ye be judged? My guess is you have, or you've heard it said. Judge not, lest ye be judged. And we always say it like that. We always say King James Version, judge not, lest ye be judged. Right? I mean, that's how we say it. That's, I don't know why. It's just how it always comes out. We talk about this judgment that we shouldn't judge, but you judge, right? We won't have a raise of hands, but we judge. And we are supposed to judge. It's how we go about our judging, Judgy Judgerson. (laughs) We put ourselves on the scale and our thoughts, and we judge according to the way we want to be judged or that we think people should be judged. And that's a slippery slope because the scripture, even uh, Rick, you quoted earlier, Judge not lest you be judged. What is it saying? Not to judge anybody? No, we judge all the time. You're not supposed to shut your brain off and, not, and nothing's immoral and everything goes. That's what got us into the Old Testament is these types of thoughts. But it's saying if you're going to sit in the seat of the judge, then you will be judged accordingly. If you judge people based on their taxes and you judge tax cheats and you, you supply the punishment to them, then you, if caught, cheating on your taxes, will be judged the same way and punished by your own rules. And because we are imperfect, guess what? When we condemn, we're not really condemning the other person, we're condemning ourselves. And that's what that scripture is talking about. If you're going to condemn, guess what? You're going to be condemned. So when we sit in the place of uh, of the judge and we become the standard, we're breaking the scripture. No one is righteous except God. No one can sit in that spot. And in Joshua, we see God's holiness revealed through power and through judgment. And we don't like that word wrath. This idea of wrath. We don't, we don't like to think of God as wrathful because that doesn't fit our paradigm. We like warm, fuzzy God. We don't like wrathful God. So could I use a different word? Could I say uh, Reward? The Bible talks about the wages of sin or the reward for sin is death. This is a picture of God's wrath. That those who step outside of the covenant relationship are given over to themselves. And can I tell you that's the worst wrath of all? Is that God, not, I think sometimes we think of wrath, we think of like whips and chains and punishment. But what God is saying with wrath is, you have gone so far beyond me, I can no longer pursue you. And therefore, I will turn you over to yourself. This is what Romans chapter 1 talks about, is that the people had become so deprived that God says, I'm giving them over to themselves. Really, that they might come to the end of themselves, as Teresa talked about this morning. Sometimes that is actually God's grace being given to people is that he releases them to them, their own selves. One of two things will happen. You will get what you wanted or you will realize that what you wanted, you could either never have, 
nor did you really want. What you really wanted, what the deep sense of all of us yearn for, is something that only God can provide. And what we do is we kick God off the throne of our life and we put something else up there and we say, if I just had this, if this circumstance would play out this way, if my bank account was full, if my student loans were paid off, if, and all those things push God out of the picture to the point where God says, you bet, have your way. Where has that left you? That thing you thought you wanted, that relationship, that guy, that girl? Where did that leave you? That experience, that pleasure that you pursued at any cost, that success, that material possession, what, where did that leave you? I think about the story of the prodigal son. Jesus tells us in Matthew, and he tells us of a son who goes to his father and says, Father, give me what is mine. Interesting that the son goes to the father who has earned all this stuff, right? Everything's the father's. And the son says, give me what is mine. Do we not do that to God? Give me what is mine. And God in his judgment, his justice, and even I would say his wrath, like the father says to the son, okay, you can have what you want. What does the son do in the story? If you're familiar, you'll know he goes to the big city and he spends all of his wealth on wild living, the Bible says. Only to find that a time of famine comes and he's destitute, poor, has nothing. He goes and sells himself into slavery to serve a pig farmer. And for a Jewish person, that's about as low as you can get. And then to realize you can't even eat anything but what the pigs don't eat. That's just insult on top of injury. And the wrath of God for some of us is that he's let us go our own way. He says, you want to go that way? Go for it. C.S. Lewis, Lewis says it this way. There are only two types of people in the world. Those who say to God, thy will be done, or those to whom God says, thy will be done. Can't have both ways. God will not share you. Not with anyone or anything. He will not share you. And his wrath comes not because of punishment, but because of grace. And eventually, it's the reward for every one of us apart from God through Christ. Not, I'm not meant for wrath, neither are you. That's what Scripture is clear about. We were meant for a relationship. That's what we were built for. That's what you long for. In all those moments, of all those searches and seeking, and all those addictions, that's what you wanted. You wanted God all along. It's just easier to go the other way. And for some of us, that's all we've known. But I'm telling you, in this moment, this morning, there's freedom that comes through Christ. And His grace is extended to you and me. Isn't that great? That's what we sing about, that's what we celebrate. We sing about God's holiness not because we fear the punishment. We sing about His holiness because that's what we desire. That's what we were designed for. Would you stand with me this morning as we pray? I don't want God to give me my way. And I pray that He doesn't give you your way.
Because in the end, that's not what we want. It's not what we need. And the end of the story of the prodigal son, you know, he, it says, he came to his senses. I like that word. It speaks to me because I'm, I'm kind of a dummy sometimes. But it says, when the son came to his senses, he said, my father's servants don't even live like this. I will go back to the father. And for some of you, that's God's voice calling to you today to come to your senses and come back because you were never meant to live in the pigsty. You were never meant for the wrath of God. That's not what you were designed for. You were meant to be in relationship with God. But he will not share you, not with anyone or anything. Let me pray for you this week. I love you guys with all my heart. Struggled through first, uh, our first service today, trying to present what I feel like God has given us. And can I just say, I, I struggle sometimes. I read the scripture and I go, what in the world? And yet my prayer this morning is that God's Holy Spirit will cause what's of him to stick into your heart. And what's of me, it just evaporates. It goes away. Let's pray. Father, you're good and your love endures forever. Great is your faithfulness to us, to all generations. Would you reveal to us by the power of your Holy Spirit the idols that we have in our life, the things that we've sometimes subtly and sometimes on purpose have put in your place? And by the power of your Holy Spirit, would you bring us to repentance, bring us to our senses, Bring us to confession that we need you desperately. And Father, I confess that it's your words I want people to hear. It's your words that your people need to hear, not mine, not my wisdom, not my humor, not my thoughts, but they need to hear yours. Would you bring us all to the end of ourselves and in your grace restore and bring us back into relationship with you through your son Jesus Christ through the forgiveness that's offered through his shed blood it's in the powerful name of Christ that I ask this amen thank you church love you look forward to seeing you next week